morning. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast. Glad you could join us again. Good to have you aboard. As always, spread the word. I'm trying to get more and more people involved, more and more people listening. Pandemic still has us in my house, not our studio. I cannot wait to get to the studio, bring some guests on, and talk about some different things with some different people. Very much looking forward to that. But you know, we've had a breakthrough. We are now past Memorial Day. And to all those who, who served and all those who lost someone who served, first and foremost, our thanks as a country to you and our thoughts with the families who are still here. Memorial Day is one of those days that's always special to me. I grew up in a military house. My dad served. My grandfather served. It, it was one of those things that you didn't take lightly. And I still don't. So, Memorial Day has come and gone. We are now into summer today in Rochester, potentially 90 degree heat. A couple weeks ago, we were shoveling. Welcome to Rochester. If you don't like the weather, hang out 10 minutes. It'll probably change. But it's good to have summer aboard. Summer sports aren't here yet, but they may be coming. We're going to talk about that. Major League Baseball, also the resumption, potentially, of the NBA and NHL seasons. But I want to start with sports that happened this weekend, a sport that happened this weekend. And the numbers of people that watched the match, the golf match between Tom Brady and Phil Mickelson, who went against Peyton Manning and Tiger Woods in a rain-drenched 18 holes down in Florida, 5.8 million people watched this golf event. 5.8 million the Last Dance, which had huge numbers, got 5.6 million to tune in. We are desperate for sports, and these numbers indicate that. But what this match did, whether it had the benefit of the previous weekend's golf match with the tour players playing a little skins game, as their failures will do this instead. This was much more of a lighthearted, let's have fun. This is a TV event. It's not the PGA Tour. Enjoy life. Go out there and do some things differently. First off, each guy got his own car. And for social distancing, if you've golfed in the area, we all, one person to a cart at a time. Generally, you still have two bags on the cart, but I'll walk, you walk. Take your tur- take turns. I-, I don't know scientifically if it's going to make a difference that way, but it's social distancing, so that's what's required. Every player had their own cart, and they were sweet cards. They were decorated up to represent each guy. And it's funny, the four people involved, you have Brady and Manning from the world of football, two of the greatest quarterbacks of all time, and two different people. Peyton Manning... As I watch him, not only in the golf, but watch him do things like the the ESPN show that he does where he goes around and interviews a lot of ex-players and talks about different things. He's got an affability about him that is something you can't teach. He's comfortable in his own skin. He's not arrogant, but he's certainly sure of himself. But he's also willing to bring himself down. And I think that's really important to be relatable, which Peyton is. He is as relatable of a superstar athlete as I think there is in media. And to watch him play golf, you see some of the Peyton Manning brain stuff that we saw. The way he and Tiger were discussing his putts, different speed levels and things like that. You could tell Peyton's brain it works a certain way. And he was the most cerebral quarterback I've ever seen play the game. Part of what made his greatness was his ability to dissect the playbook and to read defenses and put guys in the right position and then have the ability to take advantage of that. But watching him on the golf course, you saw some of that, thinking his way through the round. Brady, who early on, struggled and everybody who dislikes Tom Brady and there are many it's ironic that very few people hate Peyton Manning 
a whole lot of people hate Tom Brady. Brady's just one of those guys that people are never going to warm up to. I think in part similarly to Tiger because he doesn't want them to. Brady's the guy who lives in the huge mansion with the supermodel wife and they did the documentary. The TV 12 thing is very well known. Does anyone know anything about Peyton Manning's wife? Does anyone know anything about Peyton Manning's family? It's intriguing when you think about the difference between the two guys personally and the ability for Manning just to live his life. Brady, it's different. And he was going bad. Now, first off, they said Tom Brady was an eight handicap. Dude didn't pull a driver all day. I've played a lot of golf with a lot of good players. Everyone who's a 15 or below hits their driver pretty well. You don't get to that level without being able to put a driver in play. Yet somehow Brady's out there hitting two irons. What is a two iron anymore? Uh, Tom, just for what it's worth, me to you, no need to thank me. It's a new thing called hybrids. Much easier to hit. Go check them out. Go to your local pro shop. I'm sure it's real expensive, but you got it. You're good. Bucks are paying you a lot of money. Get a hybrid, dude. It was strange watching him struggle the way he did because, again, we were told he's an eight. Now, Peyton Manning, maybe I liked it because I always hooked the ball. Peyton Manning hooks the ball every time. And watching him play for the hook and know it's coming and hope it comes down in bounds, it was you can see where he's a pretty good player, made pretty good contact every time. But the internet was killing Brady. And I think this added into it as well. Because, let's face it, here in Western New York, the words Tom and Brady are two of the most unpopular words you can say. I think only Bon Jovi are two less popular words in Buffalo, New York. So when Brady was struggling, Twitter was crushing him. Charles Barkley bet him 50 grand or offered to contribute 50 grand to the COVID relief fund. That the charity that was benefiting from this, if he hit a green on a par three. Brooks Kepka called or tweeted out. Brooks Kepka, multiple champion winner, said, hey, if Brady pars any of the last three holes on the front nine, then I'll donate $100,000 to the COVID relief fund. So everybody's piling on Brady. And it's getting to the point where Barkley, who is a notoriously bad celebrity golfer, is talking trash to him. Brady, I want you. I'll play you right now. 50 grand. Barkley's throwing numbers, money, and Brady's taking it. But you could tell he's seething. You could just see he's smiling. Inside, he wants to just throw a club. J.J. Watt, one of the celebrity tweeters, tweeted in, Brady's about one hole away from a club toss. So Brady's furious. Everyone's piling on. And then this happened. Oh, oh, go in! Wow. Hey, hey, yeah. hey, hey. Hey, man. Check. I got that's all through. Shut your mouth, Chuck. Oh, hey. Take a look at that medicine. Get your butt out of here. Hey. Wow. That's what I needed. Hey. Back in the hole. hey, way to get 100000 for Brooks Kepka. What a Thanks, baby. Brooks, take wow. Brooks, how about that? <laughs> Yeah, take a suck on that, Chuck. Shut your mouth, Chuck. Great stuff. What we didn't show you was that when Brady went to retrieve the ball out of the hole, he split his pants. So the bashing of Brady wasn't over yet. Who splits their pants getting the golf ball out of the hole? Now, look, he's not some lard ass out there. It's Tom freaking Brady. He's 42 years old, he's still fit enough to play quarterback in the NFL. I don't care if he dyes his hair or not. He's in good shape and split his pants. Whoever 
the pant manufacturer is going to be like, oh. I mean, it's one thing, you know, a fat guy like me goes out, plays golf, and split my pants. Whoever makes my pants doesn't give a rat's ass that my fat ass split some pants. Tom Brady on national TV, our pants split. Somebody's getting fired. Somebody's going down for that one. TB12 does not split pants. But that shot changed everything. Because now all of a sudden, Brady starts playing pretty well. He makes an eagle putt after Mickelson drives a par four. And the match really took off from there. I mentioned Mickelson. This guy, the way he sees golf, the way he thinks through things, it was pretty cool having Justin Thomas, who's a multiple champion on tour and major winner, and a member at where they played. It was Tiger's home course, but Justin Thomas also a member there. And he was on course talking to Phil about some shots. To hear Phil Mickelson discuss a shot that he's about to hit, and then do exactly what he said. And it wasn't as simple as like, uh, I'm going to aim at that tree and try to draw it into the fairway. No, this was so complex. The brain of Phil, Phil Mickelson on the golf course, it, it's just one of those things that you look at and you wonder, uh, does that hurt him? Does that analysis, that expertise, that intelligence level bother him? Because sometimes the old ignorance is bliss. The less you know, the better off you are when things go bad because you're not overthinking, trying to get back to right. And it was strange to hear Mickelson talk about shots, but it was also fascinating because the amount of knowledge, the amount of things that went into it from Mickelson's standpoint, to have him mic'd up in this way, it was, it was a treat because you got to look inside his mind, which, frankly, I think would be a terrifying place for anybody who doesn't have Phil Mickelson's golf ability. All of the things he talked about were so high level. It was like a doctorate class in how to get around a golf course. Tiger on the golf course is much like Tiger in person. He is somewhat funny at times, but always guarded and, and focused. And, you know, let's start with Tiger's game. I know it's his own home course. I know that this is a match where they're having fun. But let's not forget, Tiger didn't want to lose to Phil again. He lost the first match, the $10 million match that went to Phil Mickelson. Didn't want that to happen again. And when this match was going on, Tiger went from saying a few things to all of a sudden game face Tiger was in the house. But the game that Tiger brought to the course was spectacular. Last we saw Tiger, he wasn't healthy. He was playing poorly and took some time off in hopes of getting healthy and ready for the Masters. Well, obviously, all of us through this time of pandemic have dialed our lives back in some degree. I don't think there's anyone in this country who hasn't dialed back to a degree. Tiger's no different than the rest of us. But he's very fit, and his golf game was on point. I know the majors are a long way off, but I think Tiger is going to get himself to a point where he is going to contend many times when healthy with this new golf game that he has. I say new because the swing now fits the body that couldn't handle the rigors of his previous swing. He played great, great golf. So it was a lot of fun. There were a lot of winners. The biggest winner, they raised almost $25 million for the COVID relief pandemic fund. That in itself was amazing. A lot of companies jumped on board. Face it, these four guys, they have a lot of sponsors, and those sponsors want to support them. I give credit to the four men who played that they went out in the rain. It was miserable, truly a miserable day on the course. But they went out without complaint and got after it and made the best of it. It was at one 
point raining sideways. And, of course, you had all sorts of people pulling up the Caddyshack lines and all of those other things. So great job there. I mentioned Justin Thomas. I don't think he'll be done playing golf for, I hope, another 20 years. It's a really good player and a guy who's fun to watch. The minute he wants to, a microphone will be put in his hand. He was comfortable, knowledgeable, articulate, all the things you would want from a reporter on the course. Charles Barkley dogging Brady and Manning and mentioned something about um, a regular guy dunking a basketball and Justin Thomas made the comment, let's see your fat ass dunk now, Chuck. And, you know, just good stuff going back and forth, but also the knowledge and the respect of Tiger and Phil that when he asked questions, he got good answers. So I thought that was really, really impressive. The tweets that came in, I mentioned Kapka and J.J. Watt. Russell Wilson challenged the players, anyone who hits on a par three inside of 12 feet, 100,000 meals for a community in, in Seattle. Brady hit it to like four feet. Manning hit it to like six feet. Phil hit it to like six feet. So 300,000 meals donated by Russell Wilson. A great event in that there was so many positives. And I think the biggest positive, take all of what I just talked about away. They had fun on the golf course. I think the sport of golf, and I think there are some sports like this, but no more so than golf, take themselves way too seriously. People like to have fun. If you go out to a golf course, and I don't care if it's a private club or weekend, Muni, wherever you go, People now will have music on the course. People like to have beverages on the course. People like to have fun. You're out there for four to five hours. You're with your friends. Have a good time. I get that you're trying to play well. How many of us play well? How many of us shoot in the 80s? I think it's 10% of golfers are in the 80s or lower. So 90% of us are out there just trying to get it around, why not have a good time? And the old school golf is very stodgy, very stuffy. That was the match two weekends ago where you had the guy in the khakis and the button down be the only one to touch the flag. And then this week you had these dudes out there in carts having a good time. Which one worked better? Which one translated better? And I think there's a message for golf the PGA Tour, as they come back, and that sport will come back sooner than others because of logistics, I think there's a message there. Lighten up. Let these guys wear shorts. Let these guys be human beings. Look, I don't expect Sunday at a, on the back nine at Augusta for dudes to be rolling and having a speaker in their bag, listening to music. I'm not saying that, but I also think there's so many things about the PGA Tour that are so 1950 as opposed to 2020. Um, then again, maybe we really don't want anything to be 2020. We'll just either fast forward to 2021 or rewind to 2019. We'll just skip the 2020 thing. Skip it. Just erase it. You know how some hotels didn't have a 13th floor? Can't we just do that with 2020? Let's pretend it didn't happen. Nothing came of it anyway. So, yeah, well done by the golfers involved and well done by the people at Turner for bringing the match and raising a bunch of money and having a good time while doing it. So that was one event that I watched this weekend. The other thing I watched this weekend that I wanted to talk about was the Lance Armstrong documentary. It's it's part one. It's a two-part series. Lance Armstrong, who, to me, is the most complicated athlete we've ever known. Straight up, to start, Lance Armstrong's a dick. There's no easier way to say it than that. This guy's just an asshole. And if you watch the doc five minutes in, you're like, what a tool. What is with this guy? 
He's a cheater. He's disgraced. When he was caught cheating, he brought people down with him. He hung people out to dry. He, he bled their businesses. He, he was a terrible human being. But how many terrible human beings raised $100 million for cancer research? In the late 90s, the Live Strong bracelets, the yellow bracelets, $100 million were raised by them for cancer research. So while this may be a reprehensible human being in so many ways, he's got that on the other side of the ledger. You know, life is about debits and credits, I think, right? We all try to do way more good than bad, but a lot of times we do bad things that kind of even how do you balance it i spent two hours watching this documentary in my mind trying to balance my opinion of lance armstrong this was a guy who early in his life was great at something when he was 15 years old he faked his age to get into a professional triathlete in texas where all the best triathletes in the world went to now think about that 15 years old triathlons uh mile and a half swim 26.2 mile run and 110 mile bike ride a 15 year old kid is going to do that and, and if you're a parent and you know in fairness lance's mom was a teen mom his father biological father never in the picture the man who raised him initially was I think part of the reason Lance turned out the way he is because this guy was just not a good person. He was very hard on Lance and not making excuses for Lance, but the guidance really wasn't well done in his early years. But here, 15 year old kid lies to get into this event, goes out and is leading the triathlon coming down the stretch of the marathon part of it, the last part. I think he finished in the top five against professionals from all over the world. A 15-year-old kid. This is where he got his start. And, you know, good news, bad news, he's great at an early age. It fed into the arrogance that I think ultimately defines him or defines the negative part of him. And that's where it's it's so interesting. Of course, Lance, we all know, had testicular cancer. This not only went through the surgery of having a testicle removed, it metastasized through his body. Now, I'm certainly no doctor, and I won't even play one on the radio, but listening to what he went through, when he finally went to the doctor, he was having pain. And then one day started coughing up blood. The doctor who saw him, this was, I think it was like a November 2nd, said, we've scheduled you for surgery tomorrow morning. The next day he had surgery. After that, he had subsequent surgeries on his brain and his lungs and his hip. It was crazy what he went through to beat the cancer that afflicted him. I thought one of the best parts of the doc was when he was asked whether or not the drugs that he took to cheat in cycling caused the cancer. Do you think you got cancer because of the doping? You know, I... I don't. I don't know the answer to that, um, and I don't want to say no because I don't. I don't think that's right either. I don't know if it's yes or no, but I certainly wouldn't say no. Um, the the only thing I will tell you is it's the only time in my life that that I ever did growth hormone was the 1996 season, and so just in my head I'm like growth, like growing hormones and cells. Like if anything good needs to be grown, it does. But wouldn't it make also sense that if anything bad is there, that it, it too would grow? 
an interesting logical answer for Lance Armstrong. So if it was there, maybe was it exasperated and, and, and hurried along through his use of drugs. And I also found interesting his discussion of how he got into using performance enhancing drugs. He was getting his ass kicked in the Tour de France and other professional cycling races by others that were cheating. And the cycling world, everyone was cheating. This was the worst kept secret in the sports world that people cheated in cycling events. And Lance Armstrong was getting crushed. Here, this is one time wonder kid. Now he's 23 years old and getting beaten by so many people that he started taking the EPO and the other things that ultimately propelled him to be a multiple time Tour de France champion. It reminded me of Barry Bonds. And it's funny because Barry Bonds, who I think is statistically and, you know, take the drug stain out out of Barry Bonds' career, might be the greatest baseball player of all time. Might be. I'm just throwing it out there for argument's sake. But because he cheated, we'll never regard him that way. Why he cheated, supposedly or reportedly, was because he was upset that guys who were cheating, McGuire and Sosa and like, were getting so much more publicity than he was. And he was the best player in the game. Why is everybody paying attention to those guys? I might as well cheat too then. And he did. And he hit 70 home runs. He broke Hank Aaron's record. And he's vilified. And through all of it, Barry Bonds was an asshole. He's very much like Lance Armstrong. Two of the greatest to ever have done it, propelled by drugs, and a person that turned everybody off everywhere they went through every stop of their life. It's really strange watching them. Looking forward to part two. I I won't say Lance Armstrong's complicated because I don't believe he is a complicated individual. He's, in my opinion, a fairly simple individual. He's an arrogant guy who puts himself before everybody cares little about the effect he has on others, but somewhere along the way, he was affected, and because of him being affected negatively by cancer, he started a foundation to help cancer research, which, let's face it, could ultimately benefit him. So you can make that argument, too, that even that was somewhat of a self-serving interest, but he raised $100 million for cancer research, a fact that No matter how vile anything else on his ledger, on that one side of the ledger, is that $100 million is a strong balance to the negative. So an interesting documentary, and and again, very well done by the folks at ESPN. The way they went at this, it wasn't the Michael Jordan documentary. Michael Jordan was his own editor, if you will. And we saw after the documentary people saying, you know, it's a it's a documentary based on a true story. Well, Lance Armstrong didn't have final say. So this is just what it is. Here's the story. You take it and you figure it out in your mind and riveting stuff. And again, the most complicated athlete, in my opinion, in the world of sports. So good stuff there with ESPN doing another great 30 for 30, giving us something to watch. NFL news, and there's a lot of it. We're still hoping to have an NFL season, and the NFL is hoping to play 16 games and play them as scheduled with very little, if any, interruption. Maybe fans, maybe not fans. I look at the financial dollars that are estimated to be brought in by fans. And I find it hard for me to believe that there will be no fans. There will be fans. It's just a matter of how many, how do they do it? How do they safely maximize revenue? I don't know if that's the case, but a couple things this week that the NFL has done caught my attention. One of which is they got rid of pass interference replay. 
this quietly went away. You remember last year, of course, the reaction to the Rams-Saints game, the no-call at the end of that game, which allowed the Rams to go to the Super Bowl, Saints to go home. Never forget that the Saints had the ball first in overtime and Drew Brees threw an interception. Never forget that. The Rams did end up making a play defensively that got them there. But if not for that bad call, overtime never happens. So an overreaction to that was pass interference being challengeable. The result was disastrous. And I think the biggest part of the problem was Al Riveron, the NFL's head of officiating, just didn't do a good job. And I will never know, and I'm sure we will never know, if a big part of that, him not doing a good job, was because he was instructed not to. There were pass interference challenges that you think, oh, that's definitely going to be overturned. Nope. Didn't happen. Things that you knew had to be changed weren't. Was it Al Riveron being stubborn and Al Riveron not wanting this challenge system to succeed? Or was he being told to do so by the owners? We'll never know. This year, it's now out. Troy Vincent, the head of the Players Association, released a statement this week saying he felt that the rule was sabotaged all along. I I don't disagree. The implementation of a rule that big shouldn't have happened as quickly as it did without the timing of it, all the different things that go along with it. Now, up for vote, and it will be voted on, I believe, this week, is the possibility of an eighth official, a sky judge. This is something that the XFL and the World League both did. They had an extra official up there in the box watching like we do with the ability to buzz down to the referee if something he felt needed to be changed based on the video. To me, it's a much better system. Now, there's unintended consequences here as well. If there's a hold on the opposite side of the field that has nothing to do with the play, but it's a blatant penalty. Does that sky judge have a responsibility to buzz down, stop the play, and have the penalty? Officiating isn't black and white. And I've talked about this on my radio show ad nauseum. When you're a referee, you've got the rule book, and then you've got your game experience. And those two things when they work together, make either a good or bad referee because you apply the rules based on game situation, game experience, all the things that you've learned going through. If a play happens and a penalty happens away from the play that is not blatant or in any way flagrant, should it be called? Now, there are those that believe you call it Every time, every way. Many people would hate watching that game because it's going to happen and the calls would be made and all we'd have is a flag fest. And I don't think anybody wants that. The best referees take their knowledge, apply it to the rules, look at it and say, no, I'm not going to throw a flag on that play because it had nothing to do with it. Now, after the play, you might tell the player, hey, Happens again, I don't care what the play, what the situation, I'm flagging you. Maybe you handle it that way. And again, I always use this as an analogy. If you're doing 66 on the New York State Thruway, where the speeding limit is 65, you're breaking the law. Should you be penalized? Should a trooper give you a ticket? Because if you believe that in sports, a foul is a foul is a foul, regardless of game, time, situation, you've got to call it then you believe that. So to me, that's the gray area, and that's where officiating lives. And I think having a sky judge would be an experienced official, maybe an older official, can no longer run as well. That's why he's no longer officiating. Put them up there. They have the game experience and the logistical knowledge of when a play should be flagged and how it should be handled. I'm totally in favor of the sky judge approach. I don't think the NFL will be ready to do so, especially with a potentially no uh, no spring training, no preseason. 
we don't know what the preseason is going to be like. Training camps may be shorter. There may be no games. All of these things that it would generally give you an opportunity to test this thing before you implement it. I don't, nobody knows if they're going to happen. So I think that's a reach at this point to, to go sky judge this year. I don't think it should happen. I think it should be put into play where you have it for the exhibition season, use it if there is an exhibition season and then shelve it to next year. Cause then you get some real live action to figure out the, the flaws and, and the strengths of this system. The other thing that the league is going on and is voting on is an alternative to the onside kick situation with the rule change a couple years ago, the players can't get a running start onside kicks are a waste of time. They don't happen. I think 2.8% of onside kicks were successful last year. And that may have been because the Falcons have some kid who did a whole bunch of YouTube videos that kicks the ball different ways than anyone else. And they recovered a few of them, but the new alternative, if it's voted on would give the team uh, the ball instead of kicking off with a fourth and 15 from their own 25 yard line. This can be done at any time during the game, winning, losing middle of the second quarter, end of the fourth quarter, fourth and 15. If you achieve a first down, you keep the ball. If you don't, the result of the play, where the play ends, the other team gets the ball there. To me, this is a much better situation. First off, nobody likes kickers. Kickers suck. They either blow games or win games. And when they blow games, everyone says, ah, it was a hard kick. One freaking job. Kickers suck. Do your freaking job. Secondly, this is a Big, exciting play. You know, the offense, think at the end of the game. The offense drives down, two-score game. They score a touchdown, give themselves a chance. So now, instead of relying on the guy who doesn't put pads on all week and doesn't practice with the team to come out and try and kick something that hopefully you get an opportunity for a lucky bounce, you have a play, fourth and 15. Think of the Kansas City Chiefs with Patrick Mahomes. His ability to keep plays alive with his feet. His ability to throw the ball down the field. If you're a team with a good quarterback, Lamar Jackson, think of that at the end of a game. What an asset. Who would you rather have? Patrick Mahomes have the ball fourth and 15, or your kicker, the guy who doesn't practice, barely has shoulder pads on, to come out and try something lucky to get a lucky bounce. What's more exciting for the fans? And while the onside kick rule was changed for player safety, fourth and 15, it's another play. Is it taking that much away from player safety? I don't think it is. I can't find a negative in why fourth and 15 should not happen. One other thing that happened in the NFL last week that I want to talk about was the New York Jets signing Joe Flacco. Sam Darnold's missed time each of his first two seasons. Darnold is a prospect that many people feel has great upside. Many people look at the team around him as being the biggest reason he has struggled so far in his first couple of years. He has thrown 19 touchdowns, 13 interceptions. His numbers are very similar to Josh Allen's, which for all the people that hate on Josh Allen and love Sam Darnold, Kind of interesting that their numbers end up similarly. And Sam Darnold's supporters will point out, well, the Jets don't have a good team. The Jets didn't do this. The Jets didn't have that. As if the Bills, over the first two years of Josh Allen's career, surrounded him with mega talent. Now, I think the Bills' offensive talent group is better than the Jets' offensive talent group. But prior to the Stephon Diggs edition, the best supporting player was Le'Veon Bell. Now, Sam Darnold didn't get the benefit of that because Adam Gase is a moron and decides he doesn't want to give the ball to Le'Veon Bell. But Sam Darnold has got a big year ahead of him. 
His inability to stay healthy has been a significant factor for the first two years of his career. The Jets, in their last 18 games started by a backup quarterback, have lost all of them. So, yeah, you want to go get a backup quarterback. They went out and they signed Joe Flacco. Flacco, who is 34 years old, is injured and should be ready, should be ready at the start of the season. Not start a training camp. Should be ready for the start of the season. Flacco's 34. He won a Super Bowl. Was a good quarterback. There's another quarterback that's unsigned. Cam Newton. Cam Newton's 30 years old. His completion percentage is 1% career, this is, lower than Flacco's. His touchdown-interception ratios, very similar. Quarterback rating, a little bit higher, two points higher. He also was an MVP and led the team to the Super Bowl. Didn't win it. Flacco did. Is that a huge difference? Here's the huge difference. Cam Newton has 4,800 career rushing yards and 58 career rushing touchdowns. That, to me, makes Cam Newton a significantly better quarterback than Joe Flacco. The question is, Cam's hurt. Flacco's hurt. Cam needs to be healthy to play. Wouldn't Flacco as well? Why is Cam Newton still a free agent? What's going on with Cam Newton that we don't know about that teams are unwilling to bring this guy in? Flacco should be a good backup for the Jets. Cam Newton would have been a good backup as well. If you're saying, well, you don't want to bring Cam Newton in because now he might challenge for the starting job, and that could wreck the confidence of your young quarterback. If that's the case, in my opinion, you've got the wrong young quarterback. If Sam Darnold's going to be hurt by bringing in Cam Newton as opposed to Joe Flacco, then Sam Darnold's got a problem, not the Jets. And I want to shift this to the Buffalo Bills. The Bills have Matt Barkley as their backup, who is the definition of a backup quarterback. He can be okay if need be. He can be a good guy in the locker room, in the sidelines, part of the culture, if you will. But if you have to win games without Josh Allen, I don't think Matt Barkley is going to do it. Here's the other thing. The Bills, their roster now, you can make the argument, and I think pretty easily, the biggest position of question on this team is their quarterback, Josh Allen. I'm a Josh Allen supporter. I like the kid. I think the strides he's taken since he got to training camp as a rookie to where he was at the end of last year have been significant, and I think they will only grow more so. He is every bit the person, Sean McDermott, Brandon Bean, want to lead the organization. But nonetheless, there are questions, and there always will be questions about Josh Allen until he overcomes a lot of things. Why not, if you're Brandon Bean, you have money under the salary cap, go sign Cam Newton. You know this guy. You know him well. You were in Carolina with him. Sean McDermott coached in Carolina with him. If Cam is the Bills' backup and Josh Allen struggles – and you have to make a quarterback switch, I think this team may actually be better with Cam Newton at quarterback than it would be with Josh Allen. It certainly wouldn't be significantly worse. And you wouldn't have to change your system in any way because these two guys are very similar players. My comparison to Josh Allen all along has been Cam Newton. They both can run it. They both can do a lot of things. If you're serious about winning football games this year and think you have a chance to maybe do more than make the playoffs, which, let's face it, if the Bills are going to be the division favorite this year, which they are, they shouldn't be satisfied with making the playoffs. You need to win playoff games. If your biggest question can be erased to a degree by the signing of a depth player, Shouldn't you do it? Shouldn't Cam Newton be a guy that the Bills try to pursue? Now, who knows? Maybe they've had conversations. 
And Cam, at this point, is going to sit back and wait because he wants to start. There's going to be injuries if there's a training camp in preseason. So wait till an injury happens and then go to that team, possibly. But this is something I definitely would advocate for this season, that the Bills take a look at Cam Newton. I certainly think he can play. Major League Baseball is trying to get their act together. Today's a big day. Today's Tuesday that we're doing this episode. Major League Baseball owners are supposed to submit a new financial plan to the players union for what they hope will be a season this year. As we speak here on May 26th, it's getting closer and closer to the point where this is getting a little dicey. You want to play 80 games. You want to start around July 4th. You better get this together quickly. Players may or may not be willing to play this year because of reduced salaries. The biggest question I have going forward isn't about the fans. It's about the health of the players and maybe not just the Corona portion health of the players. Maybe, in my opinion, the bigger risk is going to be the traditional injuries. Today, the Yankees, actually it was yesterday, spoke to the media. Team doctor Chris Ahmad spoke about the risk of injuries coming up and talked about how Tommy John surgery happens so often in the spring where players get to spring training, start ramping things up and go from basically nothing to a couple weeks in throwing a hundred percent. And thus that sudden wear and tear is a lot of why guys like Noah Syndergaard this year tear the UCL and need to have Tommy John surgery. This is going to be a strange baseball season if there is one. But Major League Baseball had better figure it out quickly because the shorter the time they give the players an effort to prepare, then the more injuries we're going to have. And I'm not talking about corona-related injuries. That's a whole different part of this. That's something I don't think anyone can foresee You could try to make contingency plans, but I think until we get there, until we try to allow the game to happen, we're not going to know how that affects us. You know, we've all taken this shutdown, if you will, or pause pretty seriously. We're now phasing into reopening in many ways. And while there's theories and all sorts of limitations on what we can do and can't do, The reality is none of us know what's going to happen over the next couple months as we try to reopen. It could send us back to where we were a month ago, or it could start to go away. That we won't know. And all the science of the world hasn't yet predicted what's going to happen. So Major League Baseball is no different. The biggest thing to me is they better figure this out quickly if they want to try and have any kind of season this year because they've got to give the players enough time to get ready. The money's obviously the biggest issue. One of the givebacks from ownership to the players will likely be this, the elimination of the National League rule where there is no designated hitter. This year, it will be a universal DH. We, we already know that. And some teams are positioned better than others for that. But going forward, I don't think we'll ever see the pitchers hit again. I think that this year will be the impetus to that rule going away. When you look at that from a baseball fan standpoint, now I'm a National League fan. I don't like the DH. I always refer to it as softball. Everybody hits. Very little strategy. It's just you play the game. It's softball. It's just like going up to Cobbs Hill and having some beers and playing playing softball. Don't worry about strategy, just hit. That's what this will be. What's, to me, the bigger effect is the fact that teams that are big market teams are already well-positioned in the National League to take on this change. The Dodgers, with their depth, 
and their payroll has created that depth, will easily have a DH that every other team would have as an everyday player. The Mets, ironically, have a team full of DHs. Shows to the lack of team building when it comes to trying to put together a defensive team. But they also have enough bats that they can get through. Big market, big money teams have depth, have DH possibilities, will benefit from this rule. The teams that won't, Pirates, Marlins, the bottom of the barrel teams are going to suffer. They don't have depth anyway. That's why they're down on the pecking order. So when you're already down, this is another depth piece. It's going to make them worse. And unfortunately, baseball's already got the biggest divide between the haves and the have-nots. The haves now benefit from this rule greatly. The have-nots suffer from this rule. Baseball, maybe an unintended consequence of this going through, is going to have themselves a situation where they've just widened the gap between the haves and the have-nots. It's not good for baseball long-term. It's okay short-term because anything's better than nothing. Right now we have nothing. But going forward, baseball's got to figure out its financial situation to allow the smaller market teams an opportunity to win. Go to the NBA. The NBA hoping to finish its season. A report came out last week where there's talk of everyone going to Orlando, much like a summer league thing where you play games all day. Players' confines are a hotel. They're the only ones in a hotel. Anything they can to finish the season. And again, much like what I said about baseball and golf earlier, we'll watch. Give us something right now. We'll watch. What, 35, 40 million Americans are out of work? There's an NBA game on Tuesday afternoon at 1 o'clock. Um, 20 million Americans will probably tune in. Don't have anything else to do. They've already watched all of Netflix. So you look at it and you think, yeah, this is great. But there's so much that goes on with this. I want you to listen to Adrian Wojnarowski on his podcast talking about some of the things that the league has to figure out as they move towards opening. We don't even know if they're bringing back all 30 teams. They might just bring the playoff teams back, or they might bring, let's do a play-in, and so maybe we'll take as far as the 10th seeds. We have eight, you know, the top eight seeds in each conference go to the playoffs. If I'm just going to do a training camp and come back and play a few games and be finished, that's not so hard to stay in a bubble environment. If I have to... It's you know what though I I think it is I think it's still I, extremely difficult and and they, I they won't that, be motivated to do it right right that's yes, yeah. yes yes and that's, that's what they're the, worried about that's what they're worried about they're worried I, about that that what is the incentive to have these teams go through a second training camp come back and play a few right. games they can't win they're not going to be able to reach the eighth seed so you're going to if you're going to bring everybody back you almost certainly have to have some kind of a play in tournament or why does Washington or Portland or Charlotte, let, let's say teams who were within the 10 seed and in, who have some star players who could be healthy and get in and, and, and beat somebody and get in the playoffs. And even then, though, what is what is it worth? Uh, so that's part of it. But once you get into the playoffs, you just have a more motivated group of people because your teams are advancing. So half the league goes home in 10 days because you lose your first round series or however long it takes to get through um, a best of seven and you go home. That's going to be the question for the NBA, I think they're they're looking more and more toward whether they come back to play or not starting next season in late December or mid to late December and, and changing the calendar. So, in fact, that the NBA, and this is what some have been talking about, and now they may have to do this by design, what the NBA is essentially saying or what the thought was, let's go against Major League Baseball in the summer instead of having to go against the NFL through – the Super Bowl through the end of January. And that's part of this discussion too now. So many things there to to look at, but the financial impact going forward. You know, Steph Curry makes, I believe, $44 million per year in his contract. Where does that go 
after this year. LeBron, $35 million. There's so many high-paid players in the NBA. The salaries, because of the global impact of the game, had gotten huge. Well, there's going to be a reduction in salaries, I believe, across the board. Guys like Mike Trout, who got the $40 million deal, that's not going to happen again. Not for a long, long time. And, you know, Dak Prescott currently, from the Cowboys, trying to negotiate a deal. The salary cap is going to go down significantly in all sports next year. The NBA is no different. The league is trying to finish its season in a way that will generate television dollars, but no fan dollars. This is just a way of getting something. Does it get to a point, though, where you're bringing teams back to be a sacrificial lamb in a potential three- or four-game series? If you seed it one through 16 or however you do it, the bottom end of those teams, they're showing up to get beaten by the upper echelon and will do so quickly. So you're asking guys to get themselves in shape and go play two games and then forget about it till December when this season will likely start up again. There's so many factors. What We as fans, yeah, yeah, go to Disney, play the games. It'll be great. Can't wait to see it. It'll be excellent. So many factors that go into this. And again, the questions that we won't know the answer to, to until maybe five years from now, looking back on it, we will have figured out what should have happened or what could have happened, or how we could have handled things differently. It's something I'm hoping that the league comes back. I just don't think it's as cut and dry as many of us think it is. The NHL also trying to come back. They're going to have a 2014 playoff, and the word is that they're going to have play-in games to cut it down to a 16-team playoff format. And, of course – the Buffalo Sabres, the local team, if you will, once again will miss the playoffs. 24 teams in the league, the Sabres are going to miss the playoffs. This joke of a franchise has not made the playoffs since the 2010-2011 season. This ownership group can't get it right. They continue to flounder with this hockey team. And it's sad because... The Sabres in the city of Buffalo are every bit the, the feel-good story nationwide. Continually, one of the highest-rated cities for NHL broadcasts is Buffalo, New York. And the home team is a joke. I don't know where this league team season, any of this stuff goes forward. But I know this. With the dire straits financially of the league, the effects that that's going to have on its ownership group. The Pagulas, I've talked many times about their change in financial situations based on the pandemic and things that have caused their other businesses to not thrive. Are they going to be one of the teams that makes cuts in their scouting department and other parts of their resources Good teams have good scouting departments. Good organizations have good infrastructure. Good infrastructure costs money. Through this situation, there are going to be teams that cut that infrastructure down. The Anaheim Angels recently laid off a bunch of scouts. If I'm an owner of a baseball team, I want my general manager looking at the people who are let go because of financial situations. If somebody good is let go, a scout that we know has had success, hire him. The good organizations, the smart organizations will do that. I can't see the Sabres organization being one of those smart organizations. I see them being one of the ones that, hey, we can't afford this guy. He might be an up-and-coming scout, but we can't afford him. He goes elsewhere and becomes something really good somewhere else. That's where I see the Sabres. Something to keep an eye on going forward. Again, I've talked a lot about the Pagulas. The Sabres not making the playoffs isn't a big deal. 
the result of this pandemic financially on the Sabres going forward, watch it here in Rochester with the Amherst, watch it in Buffalo with all the different things. I don't think the bills will be affected financially. We'll know the answer to that when the stadium situation is figured out and Sean and McDermott and Brandon Bean are signed in new contracts. That's when we'll know the Bagulas are good with the Bills. We're going to know sooner than that when it comes to the Sabres, how they react this offseason, which in essence has already begun, is going to go a long way to determining the health of this organization going forward. It's been nine years since they made the playoffs. It's going to be a lot longer if the Pagulas continue to operate the way they have. And I think the way they have, unfortunately, is going to be dialed back from where they will be in the future. So not a good look for the Sabre fans out there. So that does it. It wraps up another episode of Falcon Around. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll talk next week. Stay healthy. Stay safe. Pass the word. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, everybody.